Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 130. Was the Staretz Fyodor Kuzmich really Tsar Alexander I? Well, last time we recapped the four rebellions of the 17th and 18th century. Now we move on to a totally different topic, which is whether Tsar Alexander I faked his death in Taganrog in 1825 to become a wandering monk in Staretz named Fyodor Kuzmich. Tsar Alexander I, also known as Alexander the Blessed, was born in 1777. So when news came of his death in 1825, it was a big shock to all, as he was only 48. While doing my research for this podcast, I've been surprised at how hard it is to get real accounts of the life of Alexander at the time of his passing. This alone makes me suspicious of what was going on. The official account of the death of Alexander I vary according to what work you read. Some say it was typhus, others pneumonia, another by an English doctor who conducted a post-mortem on his body said it was by a bilious remittent fever of the Crimea, a kind of malarial fever. Now, pneumonia can come from having typhus, but according to Dr. Robert Lee, his lungs were clear. Another contentious issue is whether Alexander was healthy before his death. One source, David Warnes, in his book Chronicle of the Russian Tsars, claimed that he was sick starting in 1824. He said that the Tsar had, quote, suffered a serious attack of erysipelas, a streptococcal skin infection. Now, according to Ryazanovsky and Steinberg, in their book A History of Russia, Alexander's death was completely unexpected. This concurs with Trubetskoy's account that instead of being ill, Alexander was in excellent health right up until his supposed death. Are you beginning to see how this unusual death has been surrounded by such curiosity? Another controversial incident in his life may give us clues as to why he might have indeed faked his death and caused confusion about the events at the time. Of course, this event is the overthrow and murder of his father, Paul I. The question that always comes up is, did he know of the plot to overthrow his father? And even more importantly, did he know he was going to be murdered? As to the first question, I believe that it would have been impossible for him not to have known. Who would have even attempted to murder the Tsar without knowing that they would not be immediately executed for performing the deed? As for the assassination of his father, there we get a little cloudy in our knowledge. I seriously doubt that he told the conspirators to go ahead and kill him, but I do believe that the possibility of it happening had to have crossed his mind and was likely discussed. Whether this is what happened, died with Alexander, whenever that may have occurred. Now here are some things we know about Alexander during his reign up to his death. By 1825, he was one of the most admired European leaders, having been considered the man who stood up to and defeated Napoleon Bonaparte. Russia was at its zenith in power and prestige, something they have still not matched to this day. But even with this, he was filled with self-doubt, partly due to his need to please both his father, Paul, and his grandmother, Catherine the Great, two very diverse personalities during his upbringing. His reign was somewhat schizophrenic in nature, as the early years had an air of liberalism and reform, 
while his later years were far more conservative and mystic in nature. Alexander was also a philanderer, having numerous affairs and children out of wedlock. Part of the issue was that he was married at the tender age of 15 to Princess Louise of Baden, later known as Elizaveta Alexievna, who was handpicked by his grandmother, Catherine the Great. His infidelities also led to a lot of self-recrimination and guilt. Alexander's Swiss-born tutor was the liberal Frederick Caesar de la Harpe, who greatly influenced the future Tsar. But on the other hand, his father Paul pushed him to follow a more militaristic and conservative outlook on things. This dichotomy of opinion caused Alexander to have constantly shifting points of view when he became Tsar. Paul I knew that his mother favored bypassing him for his son, which made the Tsar very paranoid about Alexander when he took control. He saw a conspiracy behind every door and always believed that Alexander and his other son Constantine were secretly plotting with others. Paul would badger his sons and call on them at odd times to scare them into what he hoped would be non-action. But as we know, this did not protect the Tsar from being overthrown, but it did affect the behavior of Alexander over the years. So what does this all have to do with the supposed disappearance of Alexander? A lot. If we believe in the rumor, and we will get into why it may indeed have happened, we need to get into the mind of the Tsar and see why he would have gone to such great lengths to fake his own demise. His years in power and how he got there caused an untold burden of guilt to follow him. His mother, Maria Fyodorovna, would have nothing to do with her son after learning of her husband's assassination. She is said to have screamed at Alexander, quote, You're covered by the blood of your father. We know of the deep pain caused by the incident because of letters we have between people close to him. His wife, Elizaveta, wrote to her mother saying, quote, His sensitive soul will be tortured by it forever. Polish aristocrat Adam Zarkowski wrote, the grief and remorse which he was continually reviving in his heart were inexpressibly deep and troubling. In the midst of the pomp and festivities of coronation, he saw in his imagination Paul's mutilated and blood-stained body on the steps of the throne, which he was now himself to ascend. His mental tortures never ceased. Because of his upbringing, Alexander was a very sensitive person who became a tortured soul. At the same time, though, because of his good looks and demeanor, he hung around women all the time, loving the attention he got. It was partly because of this that the famous German statesman, Prince Clemens Wenzel von Metternich, said that, quote, Alexander's character represents a strange blending of the qualities of a man and the weakness of a woman. French ambassador Count de la Ferronese added, If Alexander were to be dressed in female clothes, he would have made a shrewd woman. General Alexander Mikhailovsky Danilevsky, who was a close companion of the Tsar, said this of him, quote, His inimitable amiability and extreme charm notwithstanding, I observed him from time to time casting glances which indicated to me that his soul was troubled and that his innermost thoughts were far removed from the ball and the women who appeared to have captured his attention. 
So we've laid the groundwork to understand Alexander's troubled soul and why he might have indeed faked his death. But that's really all circumstantial evidence and not a clear indication that he did not die in 1825. What we need are more facts. Let's go back a little bit in time to the fall of 1824. Countess Edlin, a close lady-in-waiting to Tsarina Elizaveta, wrote, quote, Alexander, discouraged and unhappy, found consolation only in solitude, which brought him to a higher level of consciousness. He was disappointed in not having achieved any lasting reforms of his country, and that, in the post-Napoleonic war era, things just weren't going right in his mind in Russia. To this backdrop, we have a catastrophic event occur in St. Petersburg in November of 1824. Hurricane-force winds and rain from the Baltic struck the city, causing massive flooding, death, and destruction. Over 600 people drowned on the 7th of November when the waters reached their apex. Over 4,000 buildings were either destroyed or severely damaged, along with bridges and roads. The last time such flooding occurred was in 1777, the year Alexander was born. Being a very superstitious man, the Tsar took the floods as being an omen. When confronted by an old man when surveying the damage, the old man said, God is punishing us for our sins. The Tsar looked at him sadly, responded by proclaiming, No, not for our sins, but for mine. The weather was not the only thing weighing on Alexander's mind. He was deeply concerned about the health of his wife, Elizaveta. During their marriage, they rarely spent time together, with Alexander spending more time with other women. But over the previous couple of years, this changed, with both drawing closer together. Now he saw his wife's health deteriorating before his eyes. As one of the courtiers wrote, We're terribly concerned about the health of Empress Elizaveta Alexeyevna, who from a cold has developed a heavy cough and temperature I have observed the emperor in great anxiety. Earlier in the year, for the first time in his life, Alexander had come down with a similar illness. He had a high fever, nausea, and splitting headaches. But that had abated, and by the fall, he was in full, robust health. So with his wife's health failing, the emperor decided it would be in their best interest to head south to a more agreeable climate to allow her to recuperate. They had managed to survive the winter and spring, but knew that another harsh Russian winter was not in the best interests of the Empress. Now we begin to head into the realm of mystery that makes this such a compelling story. The Tsar announced to a stunned entourage that they were headed to Taganrog. His secretary, Prince Volkowski, writes, I can't believe it! How could the doctors possibly have chosen such a place? as though no better places exist in Russia? Everyone was astonished, as Taganrog was, at the time, pretty much a sleepy port town located near a large swamp. On top of that, it was notorious for having horrible weather, similar to what was going on in St. Petersburg. Now, the doctors recommended that Elizaveta be moved to a warmer place like Yalta and the Crimea, which had a more Mediterranean climate, and had numerous beautiful villas and palaces to house the Tsar and his wife. No matter how hard his friends tried to dissuade him, Alexander was firm in his choice of Taganrog. But why? 
The town was some 1,400 miles from the capital, and the only way in was using very poorly maintained roads. There were fewer than 5,000 inhabitants, with 197 stone houses and 896 wooden ones. It also did not have the quarters to handle the retinue of the Tsar's entourage. It was simply not a suitable place for Alexander and his wife to stay, but they headed that way anyway, starting the journey on September 1st, 1825. The Tsar was to head out two days ahead of his wife, but before he went on the road, he went to the Nevsky Monastery to pray with Metropolitan Seraphim and the monks and priests there. After a long service, in which he was seen to be in tears nearly the entire time, Alexander met a monk who knelt in front of him and told him, Pray, Tsar. Alexander looked around the room, and after praying for a while, asked the Metropolitan where the monk slept as he didn't see any bed. The Metropolitan said, He must be sleeping on the floor, to which the monk interrupted, saying, quote, Not so. I do have a bed. Come, I'll show you. He beckoned the Tsar to look behind a screen dividing the room. The shock of the sight that he saw was stunning. It was a coffin. Look, that's my bed. Not mine only. In it we shall all someday lie. And then we shall sleep deeply. The monk went on. Emperor, I'm an old man, and I've seen much. Be good enough to listen to me. Before the great plague, ethics in our land were far better and the people were God-fearing. But after the plague, principles deteriorated. The year 1812 should have been a watershed, a time for renewal and godliness. But with the war's end, morality sank lower than ever. You are the emperor, and you should oversee morality. You are a son of the Orthodox Church, and you must live it and protect it. That's what our Lord wishes. Alexander was shaken to his core. He looked at the Metropolitan and said in a quiet voice, In my lifetime, I've had many long and flowery speeches addressed to me, but none can compare in beauty to the simple words I have just heard. He turned to the monk and said, What a pity I haven't met you sooner. With that, he asked for blessings and prayers for him and his wife and left the monastery. Oddly, the most powerful man in all of Europe was traveling by a horse-drawn carriage with only his coachman, Ilya Bakov. With tears in his eyes, Alexander looked back at the monastery as they rode forward towards Taganrog. He only got into the carriage when they were out of sight. When they reached the outskirts of St. Petersburg, the Tsar ordered his coachman to stop the carriage. He stood outside and looked back, and as though he was saying goodbye to the capital, for the last time. When out of the city, Alexander was met by the rest of his retinue, Chief of Staff Baron Dybish, aide-de-camp Colonel Solomka, Doctors Wiley and Tarasov, six court officials, and some valets and servants. All told, there were only 17 people in all. No military escorts, no police, no guards at all. What is curious about this is that there were known conspiracies to kill and overthrow the Tsar, and there was still a lot of unrest in the countryside, with memories of Razin and Pugachev still in the air. By September 13th, they arrived in Taganrog, where Wiley makes a curious note in his diary. Here 
ends the first part of our journey. Since this was supposed to be the end point, what other journey is in store for everyone? The writings of the people surrounding Alexander provide us with a number of enigmatic comments we will cover in the second half of this podcast. From here, the emperor took it upon himself to arrange for his wife's arrival, making sure that the modest one-story house would meet her needs. Elizaveta was on her way, accompanied by Prince and Princess Volkonsky, Secretary of the State, Loganov, two ladies-in-waiting, three physicians, a pharmacist, and two chambermaids. They arrived on September 23rd. Now we get into some more odd behaviors that occur often from here on. The whole pretext of the trip was how sick the Empress was, except that when she got out of the carriage, after a long and arduous trip, she bounded down the stairs. Nikolai Schilder, Alexander's official biographer, writes, quote, It is extraordinary that the Empress, whose weakened condition prevented her in St. Petersburg from making the barest unnecessary movement, descended from the carriage effortlessly and unassisted. As they made their way into town towards their new home, she was in high spirits, despite the three-week journey over rough terrain. Things just keep on getting curiouser and curiouser. Alexander wrote to his friend, Count Alexei Andreevich Arakchev, quote, Thank the Lord. I arrived at my destination, my dearest Alexei Andreevich, in good shape and after an agreeable journey. The roads and weather were excellent. My quarters here are fairly pleasing. The air is superb. We have a view on the sea, and the pace of life is agreeable. I do hope that you will come and see for yourself. Well, so much for the nonsense that Alexander was in poor health and worn out by the trip, and some writings that I've seen. Then came news that Arakcheyev's mistress, Nastasia, was brutally murdered by one of her servants. She was an extremely hated woman because of the way she treated her staff, as was Arakcheyev because of the way he treated the soldiers under him. Still, he was a confidant and dear friend of the Tsar who protected him from criticism. The murder greatly disturbed Alexander, but he didn't let it get in the way of his wife's seemingly miraculous recovery. Shortly after arriving in Taganrog, after a brief five-day jaunt around the region, the emperor was met by General DeWitt, who informed him of information about a secret organization plotting to overthrow the government, and that it was a very high-up group of disgruntled officers that led the plot. These men were to form the Decemberist revolt that sprang into action later that year. Surprisingly, Alexander ordered that nothing be done and that they should only be watched. This absolutely stunned DeWitt, and he was forced to head back to St. Petersburg without being able to arrest the conspirators. A tour was now planned to review the area of the Crimea. The 17-day trip started on October 20th. While on the road, the Tsar asked to have a certain rice drink delivered to him, the same drink that he had when he had the fever earlier previous year. This perplexed his doctors, as he seemed in very good health, and as Tarasov observed, he appeared entirely healthy and was in high spirits. With everyone, he was as social and sociable as ever. On November 1st, Alexander visited a malaria hospital and took a very keen interest in the disease, asking numerous questions about the symptoms and outcome of it. 
On the way back, an accident occurred in which a trusted courier of Alexander's, Major Moskov, fell off the emperor's carriage and was killed. The next day, November 4th, Alexander began to have what was reported to be malarial seizures, exactly the kind that he had explained to him just three days earlier. Now, instead of staying put where they were in the town of Mariupol, he ordered them to go back to Taganrog, some 60 miles away, bundled in bearskins and a coat. Back in town, Alexander told Prince Volkonsky that he had come down with a touch of malaria. As Alexis Trubetskoy puts it in his book, Imperial Legend, The Mysterious Disappearance of Tsar Alexander I, quote, And here the Taganrog drama begins to unfold with startling rapidity. The historian's task in tracing the exact sequence of events of the next 13 days is Herculean. Equally difficult is reconstructing precisely what took place in Taganrog immediately following the Tsar's death. The information we have concerning that period comes to us primarily through the diaries, letters, and memoirs of those who were present. Empress Elizaveta, Prince Volkonsky, General Daibish, and Drs. Wiley and Tarasov. Important, but perhaps less significant, are accounts of others who were on the spot, people such as ladies-in-waiting, valets, and attendants. The problem with the diaries and the memoirs is that they are inconsistent and frequently contradictory. One of the contradictions, for example, is on one report by Elizaveta, which claims that the medication bore results. But Volkonsky says that on the same day, unfortunately, despite all sorts of persuasion, he refused to drink the mixture. Of course, to make matters more confusing, Dr. Wiley claimed that no medication was offered to him at all during the day. And you wonder why we have conspiracy theories with Alexander's death. One of the sad things having to do with the documentation of the day is that Nicholas I had much of the material related to Alexander's death and even his reign destroyed. Now the question must be asked, why did he do that? The answer may be that Alexander did not die in Taganrog, and that if he didn't, then he did not abdicate the throne. And that would bring into question the legitimacy of Nicholas's reign and even his sons, Alexander II. While not proof of the conspiracy, it sure makes things more suspicious. The reports of the progression of the illness are vastly contradictory. Wiley claims he's getting worse. Volkonsky claims he had a good day. Yet Elizaveta says he looks poor, but in a jovial mood. But one thing seems to be common in many of their writings. Alexander was very deep in thought, and as Wiley puts it, quote, Since the 8th, I've noticed that he is preoccupied with thoughts other than recovery, and that he is disturbed. He also seemed quite apathetic about running the country, especially the growing threat of revolt that General Beckendorf, who sent numerous dispatches about, detailing how dangerous they were becoming. Nothing seemed to interest Alexander although he did send an officer to Kharkov to inform the authorities to arrest a group of conspirators. But this was to be the last order the emperor gave. By November 10th, Emperor Alexander felt depressed and dissatisfied with what he had accomplished. He wanted to reform the country, but it didn't work out and the serfs were still enslaved. His daughter, by the way of a mistress, had died earlier in the year, 
His friend, Arakcheyev, had resigned his position following the murder of his mistress. The Orthodox Greeks were in worse shape than before his reign, and the Poles, despite getting a representative government, began to rebel. All of this weighed on his mind. But the murder of his father was still there. He had committed the ultimate sin of patricide, and he felt it every single day. On November 11th, his wife wrote in her diary, I sent for Wiley and asked him a number of questions. He was very cheerful and informed me that despite his high fever, the emperor was decidedly better than yesterday and that I might go visit him. It was as Trubetskoy writes, quote, On the surface, the day passes quickly, everyone continuing patiently to await some improvement of the emperor's condition. In many ways, however, it is a very unusual day. During the night, Alexander meets with both Colonel Nikolaev of the Cossack Guards and the military commander of Taganrog, Baron Fredericks. To them, he gives, quote, important secret orders and commanded them immediately to leave Taganrog in such a way that nobody would notice them. The meeting and these orders were unknown even to the chief of staff, Baron Dybak. What were these secret orders? We will never know, but it is, again, highly suspicious and may be beginning of the conspiracy to fake Alexander's death. Then a very unusual event occurs. Empress Elizaveta is shown into the emperor's room the next morning at 10 a.m. Six hours later, she leaves distraught, writing to her mother, quote, Where does one find peace in life? Just as you think that all is settled for the better and that you can enjoy life, there suddenly appears an unexpected trial that steals away the ability to enjoy the blessings around you. It's so unfair. It is here that many suppose that Alexander revealed his plan to abdicate the throne and become a wandering monk. What makes this unusual is that in the morning, Elizaveta had written a very cheery entry into her daily diary, but that was the last thing she was ever to write in it. Alexander sent for Volkonsky to inform Grand Duke Constantine of Warsaw that he should be ready to take the throne if he should die. The cable was to be sent immediately, and the Dowager Empress, his mother, be notified as well. At this point, Alexander directs his treatment not towards any illness, but towards his nerves. I know exactly what's good for me. I require solitude and quiet. I am relying exclusively on the Almighty, now my constitution. I want you to pay attention only to my nerves, which are becoming frayed. When Dr. Wiley responded to him that, well, any monarch would be more nervous than the average person, the emperor said, at this particular time, I've got the best of reasons to be nervous. I can understand him being depressed, ill, but why was he nervous? The next day, November 14th, we have more contradictions from the written accounts. Wiley and Tarasov report that Alexander fell while shaving in the morning, while his personal secretary, Prince Volkonsky, writes that he fell at 8 o'clock at night after rising from his couch. Later that night, Wiley makes it known to the emperor that in his opinion, his condition is extremely grave. It is here that a priest is summoned, one Father Theodotov, to give Alexander the holy sacraments and hear his confession. 
Because the Tsar had steadfastly refused treatments from his doctors, the priest informed Alexander that by refusing them, he was in fact committing suicide, which, as anyone with any knowledge of Russian orthodoxy knows, is a major league sin. Understanding the situation, the emperor agreed to accept the medicine prescribed to him. The following days, though, Alexander is described as going in and out of consciousness, and at one time falling into a coma. He has bursts of energy, followed by crashes. On November 19th, Tarasov writes, quote, The square in front of the palace was jammed with people, who, after church service and prayers for the Tsar's deliverance, arrived in droves to stand quietly before the building, in expectation of fresh news. The emperor grew even weaker, and only rarely opened his eyes, which invariably focused on either the empress or the crucifix. His final glance was touching, and expressed such a tranquil and heavenly hope that all of us found ourselves sobbing uncontrollably, overcome by a sense of indescribable piety, no suffering at all. Then we have his physician, Dr. Wiley, writing the following. At ten hours and fifty minutes, the great monarch stepped into eternity. Notices went out throughout Russia that our angel is in the heavens. The next order of business was to name a new czar. On August 23, 1823, Alexander had signed a manifesto that confirmed that Constantine had renounced his right to ascend the throne and that Nicholas, the younger brother, would take it instead. Unfortunately, only a couple people knew about this. The two were Count Arakcheyev, who was now retired, and Metropolitan Filaret of Moscow. Amazingly, Nicholas had no idea that this was going to happen, so he was caught by surprise when he heard the news that he was to be the new czar. It is now we begin to find strange goings-on, starting with what happened to the body. An autopsy was ordered, as was the rule, followed by embalming. But as before, we have grave contradictions between accounts of the condition of the body. The official reports state that the body was well-preserved and that the emperor looked serene. Others, like English doctor Robert Lee, give an account that claims that the face had already blackened and was in very poor condition. Others report the same, claiming that the body was deteriorating rapidly, which made little sense considering that if Alexander had been embalmed right after death, why would his body be in such terrible condition unless it was an older body of someone who was the same height and build as the emperor and had died earlier in the trip? Over the next few weeks, we have the uncertainty of who the next czar would be hanging over the country. Was it to be Constantine or Nicholas? At this time, the Decemberist revolt occurred, but it was brutally crushed by the new emperor, Nicholas I. And the Decemberist revolt is a topic that I'm going to be covering in a future podcast. It's a fascinating event in Russian history. Because of the uncertainty of the situation, the body of Alexander was stalled in Taganrog, awaiting orders from St. Petersburg. On December 29th, the coffin supposedly carrying the body headed north towards the capital. Curiously, in the papers that the emperor had bought with him, was an obscure and seemingly inconsequential one. It was the record of the funeral ceremony for his grandmother Catherine the Great with an idea of how a funeral was to be 
held and proceeded with. Now, why on earth carry that with other important papers if there was no plan for a funeral and he wasn't sick at the time? Rumors were flying through the countryside that the body in the coffin was not that of Tsar Alexander. And let me tell you, there were a lot of rumors that he had not died there. So this is what kind of fueled it because right away, uh, people were wondering, uh, something's not right, something wasn't looking right. When the entourage neared the town of Tula, a group of factory workers were going to demand to see the body of their fallen leave. Well, never was the coffin open to the public and only in front of a select few people to assure that a body was indeed still there, but not to see the face of the Tsar. By early February, the coffin had reached the ancient capital, Moscow, where it lay in state. Metropolitan Filaret held a service on the 6th, and afterwards the procession headed through Tver, Novgorod, and Tsarskoye Selo. When it made it there, the family asked to see the body, which in and of itself was expected. Except it was done at midnight, with children kept up and with every non-essential priest, guard, or anyone not in the immediate circle dismissed. After the visit, the body was transferred to a new coffin, a bronze one with a lead interior. The last funeral procession got underway on March 13th during a snowstorm where Alexander was to be buried next to his grandmother in the fortress of St. Peter and St. Paul. The closing prayer was said by the priest, O Lord, give rest to the soul of thy servant Alexander and a place of brightness, a place of refreshment, a place of repose, where all sickness, sighing, and sorrow have fled away. Rumors were flying through the countryside that the body in the coffin was not of Tsar Alexander. And I've got to tell you, everything that I've read, there were lots of rumors. There were rumors all over Europe that he hadn't died. Such was the case of the discrepancies and the odd goings-on in Taganrog at the time. When the entourage reached the town of Tula, a group of factory workers were going to demand to see the body of their fallen leader, but that was rejected. The coffin was never open to the public, only in front of a select few people to assure that there was at least a body still in there. By early February, the coffin had reached the ancient capital, Moscow, where it lay in state. Metropolitan Filaret had a service on the 6th, and afterwards the procession headed through Tver, Novgorod, and Tsarskoye Selo. When it made it there, the family asked to see the body, which in and of itself was expected. Except it was done at midnight, with children kept up, and with every non-essential priest, guard, or anyone not in the immediate circle dismissed, which was against protocol. Now, after the visit, the body was transferred to a new coffin, a bronze one with a lead interior. The last funeral got underway on March 13th during a snowstorm, where Alexander was to be buried next to his grandmother in the fortress of St. Peter and St. Paul. The closing prayer said by the priest was, O Lord, Give rest to the soul of thy servant Alexander, and a place of brightness, a place of refreshment, a place of repose, where all sickness, sighing, and sorrow have fled away. So, by now I'm sure you're saying, well, kind of seems that Alexander did die on November 19th, 1825. And by the way, that is the old calendar dates that I've been using here, not the new calendar. 
So you're thinking, where's all the controversy? Let's move forward to January 31st, 1864, to a small hut in Siberia, where the Storets monk Fyodor Kuzmich lies dying. He looked up at his benefactor, Simeon Kromov, and pointing at his chest said, Here lies my secret. He then takes his last breath. Kromov, while preparing the body for funeral, finds a note in a sachet, an old one, written in code, with only the letters A and P being evident. The rest were numbers. For decades, no one could figure out what the code meant. Grand Duke Nikolai Mikhailovich, a cousin of Alexander III, tried to decipher it with no success. But in 1927, two men, one in Riga and the other one in Belgrade, where my mother and her family lived, they were independent of each other, these people, and they broke the code. Here is what the message said that was carried in the Storets, by the Storets monk, Fyodor Kuzmich, for his life. Anna Vasilivna, we have discovered an incredible flaw in our son. Count Palin informs me of Alexander's participation in a conspiracy. We must hide tonight, wherever it is possible. Paul, St. Petersburg, March 11th, 1801. Anna Vasilyevna was the mistress of Emperor Paul I, who was murdered on March 11th. Of course, this note being found in an old man in Siberia is little proof that Kuzmich and Alexander I are one and the same man, but there was a lot more evidence that indeed they were the same person. Let me say something about Kuzmich. He was tall, had a balding spot according to the one drawing of him that I've seen, very similar to the one that Alexander had. But what is remarkable is he claimed to be just a very simple man, yet he spoke numerous languages, had the air of an aristocrat when he walked and the way he carried himself. He was very well versed in so many different subjects that it indicated that he had a very high level of education, something that the average Russian could not have afforded. Whoever this man was, he had to have been of an aristocratic family to have the kind of way of him, the air of him, that was written many times about the man from many people who visited him. Now, in 1866, two years after the death of the Storets, this is when the tomb of Alexander I was supposedly opened and the empty coffin was removed and replaced by a wooden one that was on a cart outside the cathedral of the fortress of St. Peter and St. Paul. This information comes to us from the dying words of one Igor Lavrentiev, who told his daughter about the incident and that he had been paid 10,000 silver rubles for keeping quiet. Lavrentiev had held on to the money and wanted his daughter and the rest of the family to know where it came from, since he was really a poor man. He told her, quote, Such a significant sum will create suspicion, and I will inevitably be accused of coming into the money dishonestly. At the time I received it, I swore that I wouldn't disclose to anyone how it came to me. Now, however, I greatly fear that my name will be dragged through the mud. Lavrentiev was later proven to indeed have been paid by one Count de Adlerberg, and that he was a guardsman at the fortress at the time of the supposed coffin swap. But his is not the only story about the opening of the tomb that year. Two others told similar accounts, but all of them have come to us from second and third-hand accounts.
This is not very solid evidence of the duality of Alexander and Kuzmich, but evidence is building. During 1921, with the Bolsheviks looking to raid the tombs of the emperors looking for riches, it was rumored that when Alexander's tomb was open, there was no body and only a dummy was found. The problem again is we have no first-hand accounts or corroborating evidence, just more speculation and rumor. And it also makes you kind of wonder what happened in, uh, back in 1866. If they supposedly swapped a body and then there was no body, who's telling the truth? I have a little bit of more of a problem with the Soviets telling the truth that they actually didn't find anything. Because what they really were trying to do there is by saying this, then it delegitimizes Nicholas I's reign, Alexander II's, the III's, and Nicholas II. Because if Alexander I was still alive and did not abdicate, then how did Nicholas get into power? Then his son and his grandson. So that's why I think there was some motive for the Soviets to say that. What is compelling is the lack of proper protocol after the death of the emperor and the curious events thereafter. According to tradition and rule of the land, immediately following the death of a ruler, every detail is supposed to be recorded. This was not done at all. As I mentioned earlier, the diaries and accounts from those present are oftentimes contradictory. One says, just prior to death, the paroxysm terminated with moaning and hiccups. The breathing became increasingly jerky. On five occasions, it stopped and restarted in agony. Dr. Dobert wrote, he died in the most horrible suffering. His agony continued some 11 hours. But Tarasov wrote, saying, his final glance expressed such a tranquil and heavenly hope. There was no suffering at all. Now, this in of itself is not a smoking gun, but it's highly unusual. But another fact makes it seem so. We have an eight-hour period that followed his death where there is nothing written about it. No one's diary contains one word of this time. Add to this the strange fact that Alexander was given his last rites four days before he died, and the priest never returned to his bedside the whole time. For those of us who are Russian Orthodox, it is highly unlikely that the priest would not return at least once to the Tsar, Emperor of all of Russia. And if the diaries were right, they knew he was about to die. But no one thought to call a priest? I find this very odd. We also found out that the autopsy was not started until a full 33 hours after the death, and then the body was in a state of decay that makes no sense whatsoever. It was decayed like that of a person who was dead for many days, maybe weeks, not a day and a half. As for the affliction that caused his death, Trubetskoy, in his book about the imperial legend, tells us that he had the symptoms. The autopsy report and other writings analyzed by modern medical people, and they all agreed that nothing seemed to make sense. Neither malaria, which Alexander claims to have had after visiting a malarial hospital, nor typhoid fit the symptoms or the autopsy report. Lies continue after the return of the body to St. Petersburg, where General Dybok reports to the Dowager Empress, the mother of Alexander, claiming to have not seen him very much after he became ill, except we have numerous writings from Volkonsky 
talking about the general's extensive meetings with the Tsar. The fact that Dybok was the chief of staff leads us not to believe his account to Alexander's mother and makes us more suspicious of the death. So, if Alexander is not in the coffin, who is? There are two possibilities. One is the courier Maskov, who died 16 days before the emperor in the unfortunate accident I mentioned earlier. He was the same build and height as Alexander, and his body could have been kept in fairly good condition because of the cold temperatures in Taganrog. But there would have been enough decay that fits what we heard from the uh, other reports. Now, the second is a soldier with a Semyonsky regiment who died on November 18th in a local military hospital. Strangely, there's no record of his burial, which goes against all rules following the death of a person in the military at the time. Now, with Maskov, he was supposedly buried immediately, but there's only one witness, General Dybeck. This also went against all the rules of order. No orthodox service or prayer was held, just a hasty burial. This is odd because Alexander writes that he felt very guilty about the young man's death and would certainly not have allowed this to happen to his personal courier. Now, every person in the entourage that was with Alexander at his supposed death were given lavish new titles, estates, serfs, and other gifts of honor. Now, here's another odd issue. It's reported that Tarasov never went to the annual memorial services on the anniversary of Alexander's death on November 19th until he heard that Fyodor Kuzmich had died, and then for the first time, decades after the death, did he go to the service to honor Alexander. Now, if Alexander had decided to leave his post as emperor of all Russia, where did he go and how did he get out of town? It would have been impossible for him to have left the city on land, as there would have been people who would have recognized him. There was a British yacht that was in the harbor, owned by Earl of Cathcart, the former ambassador from Britain to Russia, who was a good friend of Alexander's. All records of ships coming and going through the port of Taganrog between 1823 and 1826 are strangely missing another cover-up that feeds into the imperial legend. But we have a record from an account told to Alexandra Dubasova by General Balinsky, who was researching the legend. Quote, he made an inquiry at Lloyd's and discovered that after November 25th, there was only one foreign ship in Taganrog. It was the yacht of the former British ambassador to Russia, the Earl of Cathcart. Officials of Lloyd's had noticed a strange circumstance regarding this vessel. The yacht's log contained neither the date of her departure from Taganrog nor her destination. Only after a few weeks did an entry place her in the Mediterranean. Now this is most extraordinary because according to naval custom and rules, a ship's log is meticulously kept day by day. Thus, Based on the absence of entries in the ship's log and the friendship between the emperor and the Earl of Cathcart, Balinski concluded that Alexander I had indeed disappeared on this yacht. There were other very compelling tales of a man in Palestine in 1836. They said they found, quote, traces of the presence of a mysterious traveler in Palestine and then established the arrival of the traveler from Kiev.
So I leave you now to contemplate the evidence provided and make your own judgment as to whether Alexander I of Russia faked his own death to become the traveling starets Fyodor Kuzmich or not. Now, Leo Tolstoy believed he was, as did the stories I heard as a child from my mother and grandmother. My grandmother lived in St. Petersburg, just off the Nevsky Prospect, near the Tsar's palace, and told me on numerous occasions that many within the Romanov family confided that Kuzmich and Alexander was one and the same person. What do I believe? I think that, yes, the switch was made because of the tremendous burden on Alexander's soul due to the patricide he was part of when his father was deposed and murdered. What I think you should all do is read this one book, Imperial Legend, The Mysterious Disappearance of Tsar Alexander I by Alexis Trotsky, and judge for yourself. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Next time which will be in about a month because of the extensive traveling I'm going to be doing around the country, I will cover the life and death of one of the most controversial people in Russian and human history, Grigory Rasputin. A couple of things I'd like to ask of my listeners today. First off, if you haven't done so, please give the podcast a rating on iTunes, as it really helps boost listenership. Secondly, if you get a chance, head to my blog site at www.russianrulershistory.com and browse through the posts, and if you can, make a donation, small or large, to keep the podcast going. Also, don't forget to head to our Facebook page where you can ask a question, make a suggestion, or leave a comment. Now, as always, das vidanya i spasiba bolshoya.